And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on January 29th, 2021. Max Blaustein is an environmental scientist with Philadelphia Department of Parks and Recreation's Natural Lands Management Team. His work has focused on the restoration and operation of historic nursery facility in West Fairmount Park, where he propagates native plants for conservation projects that support the ecosystem function and habitat value of the 5,600 acres of natural areas within the city of Philadelphia. Welcome to the Trillion Trees podcast, Max. My great honor to be here. Thank you for thinking of me. We like to jump right into it, so you'll have to put down your hoagie and- uh... Oh, okay. (laughs) Philadelphia's known for their hoagies, right? So I hear, yeah. Yeah, for those of you who are international listeners, hoagies are a Philadelphia thing. They're a sandwich on a long roll that's packed with all kinds of fun things. Big question, Max. How did you get to the Greenland nursery? Well, so I started out in college studying something totally unrelated. I was in a design program at the University of Cincinnati studying industrial design. And a friend of mine had a job at the Crone Conservatory, which is a, a beautiful deco greenhouse and conservatory that's part of the Cincinnati park system. And um, he had a job that he had to leave town and needed someone to cover for him. So I, I took that position and it mostly entailed like hanging out in the greenhouses while people had private events in the evenings, you know, and then locking the doors at the end of the night. It was, it was pretty good. And I was just kind of immediately struck uh, with the space and with the work that the people there were doing. And it was uh, a literal breath of fresh air after, you know, spending days, you know, in front of a computer in these studios in design school where I was not really thriving, I didn't feel like. And so got interested in horticulture and was fortunate that there was a horticulturist on staff who really encouraged me to to get into it and kind of got me started. And so I started doing some work in the greenhouses there and um, spending a lot of time in their resource library and decided that was the path I, I had to get onto some way, somehow. And then, yeah, it took kind of a circuitous route, took some classes in horticulture out in California, did some volunteer work at different botanic gardens and um, native plant nurseries, and then really got into propagation through an apprenticeship at the Arnold Arboretum up in Boston. I was really fortunate to get some training under their longtime propagator, Jack Alexander. Mm. And um, that is just a, an amazing garden and facility and just such a history there that really 
really drove home that propagation specifically was what I was interested in. And there was also another curatorial staff member who was very interested in the native flora. I mean, you know, the Arnold uh, has a, a very broad collection, but a lot of that work in the propagation department was repropagation of historic specimens. A lot of them collected all over the world. But there was, yeah, one staff member who was very interested in native flora. And so during our lunch break, she would take me around to local parks and uh, help helped me get on the road of appreciating our native plant communities and helped me out with a lot of plant ID in those early days. And then from there, uh, I ended up taking a seasonal position with what was then the Fairmount Park Commission. Um, they had this old historic nursery facility that had been basically abandoned for a couple decades. And they had been doing restoration work in our, our natural areas and had found that they weren't always able to find the diversity of species that they were looking for for these projects. And um, when they were, they weren't always assured of what the provenance of those species were. And so they were interested in, in putting together a production facility to try and start growing some of these local genetics and some of the species that they couldn't find in the trade. So they had gotten a, a small grant, I think it was $5,000, and uh, gave me like six months to to give it a go and see what we could come up with. And that was 13 years ago. $5,000 to change it all over that. You must be very resourceful. I guess that <laughs> industrial design classes really help. They, they have come in handy in, in ways I never would have expected. <laughs> well, you know, what's really interesting. I was thinking it's like a little Arnold. <laughs> yeah. It's like a little Arnold right here in the city of Philadelphia. Cause we have some, so many historic trees also and you know, I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, I work at the Barnes and the um, Mrs. Barnes had such a close connection with the Arnold. Many of her plants that are on her property are from the Arnold through okay. her communications with the, with the professors at the time in the early 1930s. And they would send her seed or they would send her a little cutting or uh, something like that, or she would pay them to get a big plant or tree and plant it on the, on the grounds of the Barnes um, Arboretum. And uh, that, was, that had been originally an arboretum before the Barnes took it over. So uh, there's a long provenance of, of history there. So if you're ever collecting and you're looking for something that's a little bit different that, you know, I know you're looking for natives and she does have natives there too, but um, sure. the, the provenance, in a, you know, circuitous, you know. Yeah, from, I love those those relationships. And a lot of people don't know that. The other place is also the Henry Foundation, which has an amazing collection of plant material of natives in particular um, that, um, that might be something that you might want to look into. Okay. Yeah. Great. But, uh, wow. So that's a really interesting story. Right? <laughs> I think that's fantastic. And, and you gave us a little bit about your background um, and I know that you took some classes at Temple too. Um, I did, your, yeah. Your tenure at the at the um, at the nursery. Um, what do you see for the future for the nursery? Well, I think there's definitely a lot of opportunity for growth. I mean, we're we're still a very small operation. Um, you know, it's basically one full time staff. Historically, I've had some additional seasonal help. We're just getting ready to bring um, another position on board, hopefully in the next couple of weeks to help me out. And um, 
but we're, you know, obviously pretty reliant on volunteers and we have a great relationship with um, PowerCore, which is an AmeriCorps program. But, um, you know, in the scheme of things, we're still a very small operation. Um, so we've got the physical space to grow, but we, you know, need investment, you know, and, uh, labor and infrastructure and all that stuff to, to be able to grow. I think there's an immense need for plant materials throughout the city, both within the, the natural lands group. Um, and then in the department and the city as a whole, you know, there are so many programs focused on getting plants out into the landscape that there's a myriad of opportunities for us to, to build our influence and to be producing those plants for the city. So. And the vision for collecting too. Um, you have an interesting, um, history within your greenhouse there for collecting. Um, how, how do you collect or how does your protege collect? Or I think that's really fascinating too. Yeah. I mean, that's really the big reason that we exist is that, you know, they were interested in capturing local provenance um, plant material. And so, uh, you know, that's been a, a learning process for me. Um, and basically our philosophy has been sort of brought in from other experts in the field who know much more about this than I do, but we're using the EPA ecoregion map as sort of the, the framework of what we deem a, a responsible collection zone, meaning that the plants that we collect from within these areas, their progeny will be adapted to the conditions in our outplanting site. So beyond that, you know, within those boundaries, and, you know, Philadelphia is fortunate in that we are sort of split in two between uh, Coastal Plain and Piedmont. So we have two physiographic provinces that we're working in, which means we have a fairly large geographic area to, to work from as far as seed collection source. And we try as much as possible to match the provenance of plants that are going into Coastal Plain sites from Coastal Plain sources and likewise in the Piedmont sections. So, you know, initially when we first started, we talked like, oh, you know, we'll collect seed from within the park and, you know, it'll be perfectly adapted for projects in the park. But obviously a lot of these species aren't really around anymore, or there's one here, one there, or maybe we planted it, you know, and it's kind of hard to tell. And so we, you know, sort of gradually expanded our horizons and the reality of, you know, the logistical complications of collecting seed for this kind of work that you, you really want to find populations that have a large number of individuals so that you're, you're capturing maximum genetic diversity within each of those collections. So oftentimes that can be a challenge to find. We go to a lot of different resources to find those populations. You know, we look through uh, historic herbarium records, the Mid-Atlantic, I forget what the megalopolis project the digitization of all the regional herbaria are now putting those collections online which is an amazing resource and then you know any number of other personal sources when i'll i'll say that i'm looking for x species does anyone know where there's a good stand of it and so we do a lot of work with partner organizations so um state parks state forests state game lands uh natural lands other private landowners and so we're we're basically all over the place in southeastern PA, Delaware, New Jersey, into Maryland occasionally. So it's a lot of running around. Definitely fun. one of the. It's a lot of fun. It can be. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's it can be challenging field work. But a lot of the time, you know, taking tools into the 
more rural areas, you know? And so a big part of it has been considering those kind of logistics that you wouldn't think about. So, you know, I'll say, all right, I'm looking for larger tracts of protected land in this eco region. Where are the right of ways where there's going to be a lot of edge, where it's going to be a little bit more accessible or where you could drive a pickup truck, um, you know, through an access road and, you know, have someone standing in the back of the pickup truck and pulling stuff off of trees that way. So a lot of those kind of like, yeah, logistical considerations have come into effect and have, have winnowed down the, the, the sites that we go back to time after time because we are stretched thin, you know, we don't have time to be fooling around out there that much. So we got to make it count as much as possible. That's really interesting. It made me think of the, uh, the Quercus Lorada that's over 200 years old over there on city office of city line Avenue. Are, are okay. Yeah. Are you familiar with it? Yeah. That's not far from me. That's the only one in the region and it would be kind of neat to have some new Quercus Lorada um, to have in, in the collection because it is a historic tree and they think that it was, well, they know that it was there during the American revolution um, and it survived. It was a Southern species, but, there, there you have it. It's, it's there. Yeah. And have you seen, does it produce fruit? Oh though? yeah, it does. Yeah. I, was, I was there last fall to take some photos of it and to put it onto my Instagram account. And uh, there were acorns around, but they, they, clean up, uh, they clean up the area well because it's in a, in a large parking lot, but the tree is well-maintained. Right. And uh, it is a beautiful tree. So if you have a chance to go over and see it, yeah, right off of Monument Avenue. Yeah, we are starting to look at some of those southern oaks. And um, so if nothing else, it would be good to get my hands on some to, to get the propagation protocol and figure out how they grow in the nursery. Yeah, it's probably less than two miles from, from the nursery. Yeah, yeah. Max, can you talk about or what you know at least about what the nursery was like in its heyday? I always, uh, you know, I'm a Chicagoan, but I'm always wondering what, Fairmont Park was like when it was, you know, had a huge staff and uh, ancient crumbling infrastructure was <laughs> maintained at its highest level, including street trees, uh, you know, the London Plains getting, I don't know, pollarded. Yeah, I, so unfortunately, I have not been able to find many records about the nursery itself. I know that it's its origins were just after the centennial. Um, so the oldest, the main greenhouse building I have the plans for, which are from 1910. And there's another office building that I believe is from the 30s. So it's a very utilitarian structure, you know, even though it's old, it's, it's um, lacking in ornamentation. But um, I do have some aerials through the years from the like the 20s and the 30s that show it being pretty expansive. I think it was about 40 acres. And so what is now the Fairmount Park Organic Recycling Center, we're all nursery fields and extending. We have about um, 10 acres inside of our deer fence right now, which encompassed the bulk of the main operation. But then also what are now basically the woods adjacent to our facility were also nursery fields. And there are remnants of that infrastructure out there. I mean, there, there are trees that were clearly nursery plants that never got dug that are in straight rows out there, big blocks of yeah. things. And I mean, there was, um, 
an old irrigation line that had been leaking for who knows how many decades <laughs> out there that had formed a stream. You know, the mountain bikers had built a bridge over it. It was like part of the landscape. Plus you had uh, some rail going through there, didn't you? Oh, I don't recall that. Yeah, there, there's a little bit of action. Uh, well, I might be off a little bit, but coming in from Strawberry Mansion, and then uh, there was a, the the little rail that took uh, visitors out to the amusement park. Oh, the trolley. Okay. It was probably the trolley trail. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Yeah, so that that was right next door there, and that is part of a a project that the Fairmount Park Conservancy has been working on the past couple of years, sort of um, realigning some of the trails through West Park along that old footprint of the trolley trail. So that's, that's up and running and folks should definitely go check it out. Yeah. There's, there's a long story to history. I'm not sure, you know, I think that they grew a variety of things over the years. You know, I know that they were doing a lot of ornamental plants and some of the more recent iterations. I mean, there were some folks from the, the arborist crews who were out there in the eighties who talk about, you know, digging being large B and B trees, you know, several dozen a year or whatever, yeah. not huge numbers or drinking, digging calorie pay, pairs, things like that. So I, I think, yeah, production out there had several iterations. I think it was abandoned several times in its life. Yeah. So. I was telling Eva, I, I've actually been out, I wasn't spying on you, but I was out to the recycling center uh, twice this week because we're working up there at 49th at Haverford at the Kirkbride Center, formerly the Institute of University of Pennsylvania Hospital. And um, so I stop in there because I'm kind of an obsessive with organic matter. And uh, I noticed I have actually run through there a lot with a buddy as well. Okay. But I had my pickup truck to get manure and, and compost and was able to uh, see the operation. The last time I visited, and I can't remember if I was with you, and I'm not going to say I trespassed, but I do remember that you had uh, the, uh, is it Oklahoma gravel? Are you still playing around with that at all? Missouri gravel, but yeah. Missouri, I almost got it. Right. Yeah, close. Um, we are not doing that. So that was a project we were doing in partnership with PHS. Um, and that was uh, basically like a large holding tank for some of the larger bare root trees that they get yeah. for their um, tree tenders program. Um, we unfortunately, you know, we're so strapped for space and resources that that um, that was sort of a resource intensive setup for for what it was doing for us. And since they have their, a nursery facility, we asked if they would be able to take that on. So they took that off my plate. But I'm eternally grateful to, to Mindy and Dana over there for yeah. all they did. Yeah. Where do they have their nursery? At uh, Meadowbrook, right? Is that the time? Oh, okay. Yeah. They Meadowbrook. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I, yeah, a little bit different setup, but... And nowhere near you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, our production is you know, really limited to container plants for the most part. That's what really works with our system as far as getting them to restoration sites and the, the planting crews that we have. So yeah, the bare root holding was not really something that was of high utility to our operation. So let me ask you this. Um, tell our listeners how long it takes to get something from a seed to a, a viable plant that can be planted out into the landscape that will actually take, in other words, without a sure. lot of fussing? Well, that's a great question. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of variables. Um, but so typically, I mean, so we're working in spaces that tend to have some pretty high invasive pressure. Obviously, the city and the region has very high white-tailed deer pressure. Um, so we have over the past, I want to say eight or nine years, most of our restor larger restoration projects now include uh, large deer exclosures. So on the order of like 10 to 30 acres with eight foot tall galvanized woven deer exclosure fencing, because without it, pretty much anything you put in the ground is just going to get browsed to the, to the end of it. So if it's inside a fence like that, we can get away with something a little bit smaller, though we tend to still need something that's, you know, at least three foot tall because we don't want it to get lost. Um, you know, invasives are going to be an ongoing um, issue even after planting. And so we want to make sure that those plants are able to establish and not get lost. So something like that, I mean, it depends on the species. You know, some things are pretty quick moving. We could grow a three foot tall plant in one season. Some things that are slower moving from seed, you know, that could be two or three. And then if it's outside a deer fence, we try to get something that's up above the browse line or big enough that we can put some sort of individual tree protection on. And that's going to add definitely a season or two, depending on the species, you know, and, and getting from seed to plant, you know, is its own process. All of these species have some sort of dormancy that has to be broken for the most part. Some are fairly simple, just a, a winter you know, when they're ripe in the fall, they go through their winter and then germinate in the spring. There's a handful of species that have, have longer um, dormancies. Some of the viburnums can take a while. So sometimes it can be up to 18 or 24 months from when you collect the seed and, and start the process to when it actually germinates. And then you can start the, the actual growth of that plant. So it ranges from, you know, 18 months to four or five years. So, so for our listeners' sake, that it is a real art to know how to grow seed. Um, if it has a dormancy, if it has a double dormancy, if it has maybe even a chemical trigger that it needs to have, that tells a lot about the knowledge that you have to have in order for you to, to grow these plants for the city of Philadelphia. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, a lot of those protocols have been heavily researched and, and documented. And so those sort of recipes are out there, but, um, you know, I, I've heard propagation referred to as a combination of art and science. And I think that it really is and that, you know, we have a, a pretty good understanding, at least for, you know, many of these species, occasionally I'll, I'll have trouble tracking down a protocol and we'll have to do some experimentation to get germination. But, a lot of it is about your individual setup and what your end goal is, what your facilities look like, what your resources are, and figuring out not only how do you get it to germinate, but how do you do it consistently? How do you get it in the numbers that you need, in the timeline that you need, with the resources that you have available? And, you know, in a situation like ours where we're constantly resource limited, it does require a fair amount of creativity and how to, how to maximize our production with a minimal amount of input. Do you work with other institutions like Mount Cuba, I know they have a lot of work being done on the recipe of propagation uh, of natives in particular because they're less known than um, some of the non-native plants because 
we had actually focused more on non-native plants for a long time. And sure. now that we're focusing on native plants, we need to know those, those recipes or triggers that are the best way to grow something. You incorporate or work with other institutions? Uh, not as much as I should. I do know some of the folks down there um, and I had, had met with um, some of their natural lands team and um, their curatorial staff. And I, I know I've met their propagator, I believe, but we're not in close communication, but that's a good tip. I should reach out. And Longwood too, actually. Um, I was talking, we had, we had Michael Dunn last week, right? And he was talking about some of the trees that are historic for Westchester, some of the cherry trees that date back to when they first came here to this country from Japan, brought over, and the congressmen were able to take some back to their community. So they have at least one old one that they believe is from the, the turn of the 20th century. And so I said, well, why don't I hook you up with the people? Because we had Patrick Joyce from Longwood talking, and he was saying that he does this. So I hooked him up with Michael Dunn, and they're going to do a whole thing on uh, propagating the historic trees in Westchester. So maybe that's something that you might want to consider going to visit Patrick Joyce at Longwood to see what they're doing. And maybe they can either help you or um, you can help them. Sure. You never know. Yeah, there are. It's easy to get siloed, you know, but there's a lot of uh, collaborative work and a lot of overlap between these regional institutions. And we're lucky in our area in particular, just the, the density, the sheer density of plants, people, and institutions with this kind of focus. So, yeah. Do you, uh, it sounds like regional propagators could have one heck of a summit seminar and invite us all, <laughs> all of us that are on the periphery to watch you people talk to each other on how you get your, uh, Quercus lorata to uh, propagate. I'd certainly like to know how to do a little bit more of that. Well, so there there is a trade organization called the International Plant Propagator Society, which um, there you go. is has a long history. And I'm unfortunately a lapsed member, but I was a member for many years. And uh, it's an incredible resource. I managed to pick up, of course, now everything's online. You know, all of their proceedings are have just immense knowledge of all of these practitioners that go back decades. You know, any topic you can imagine related to propagation is is in these. And I, I was fortunate at one of their events, they tend to have an auction. And usually it's, you know, the first plant of a, of a new variety that someone's developed, they'll auction off, um, something like that. And one year I was at the conference and they put up someone's personal collection of the print volumes of their proceedings from, I think it, the earliest one is from like 1965. And it was for, you know, 45 or 50 years worth of the proceedings that I managed to score at auction for a couple hundred bucks, which is just an incredible resource. And that organization is is still around. They're doing some really great online meetings and presentations these days. So if anyone's interested in propagation, I highly recommend you join. My friend that I went to school with from Penn State, she was actually the secretary and her husband, who's a well-known propagator, Mark Bridgen, and his wife, uh, Margot, they have been members for as long as I can remember. And uh, it's a it's a fabulous organization. And and I think that it's a necessity, really. It's a necessity globally so that we know where things are growing and who is doing what research so that in case there is some kind of catastrophe um, from an environmental standpoint, it could be taken care of. Sure. 
And there's propagation is sort of a niche art and practice. And then even, you know, sort of people focused on the conservation side of things are, are even more focused independently. And, you know, there are lots of ornamental nurseries and, and gardens out there, but the, the conservation practitioners are an even smaller subset of that. And um, they are trying to find ways to coordinate between researchers and practitioners and finding ways like out of what we do on a pretty small scale, trying to find ways to make it easier for people like us managing these natural areas to have access to, to appropriately sourced plant materials and um, finding ways to pool our resources. Do you know uh, Diane Eric, who runs the Collins Nursery? I do. Yeah, that's okay. a really cool spot. That's we really we cool frequent spot. her her plant sales. We have a pretty small yard, so we're we're kind of maxed out, but we tend to pick up one or two things almost every time. Yeah, she's she's awesome, and she also has a really good background just by practicing in the trade um, on propagation. Yeah, um, her propagation techniques are amazing, and and uh, I used to go up to Temple when they had a nursery there before she was involved. I think it was Beth Pilling who was running it for John Collins years ago and uh, get get trees and things like that for our greening uh, projects for, for Cheltenham Township. And uh, that was that was pretty amazing to see walking into some of these Quonset huts and seeing these trees all lined up and very exciting. Yeah, I love that stuff. Does the mayor ever uh, bring a brown bag lunch out to the nursery, Max, and just uh, sit quietly in the back of his uh, SUV? He has not yet, at least not that I'm aware of. Okay. <laughs> Seems yeah. like he could use a little break. It's been a rough week. A kumbaya yeah. moment, maybe? <laughs> well, you know, a little uh, tree whispering, probably do him some good. It is a nice little slice of the country out there. I love it. Yeah. You know, and especially this past year when, you know, all meetings have gone virtual and, and many people are working from home. I've been fortunate that I've been able to keep, keep chugging along out there. And so I'll often, you know, sit in on meetings and, you know, everyone's sitting in their, their home office or their dining room or wherever. And I get to sit outside and everyone's yeah. a little jealous. <laughs> I have to extend a compliment too. I can tell, uh, and for our listeners, uh, the backdrop, everyone evaluates everybody's Zoom backdrop. Max is obviously a neat Nick, and <laughs> as is the nursery. When I was out there running uh, two weeks ago, I was with my neighbor, and I said, this guy keeps a very tidy operation. It is the neatest, tidiest, most orderly uh, nursery I've ever seen. So well, good I on you. I really appreciate you saying that. It's always, yeah, a struggle to keep things clean. It's something I endeavor to do. I actually just filled a 20-yard dumpster full of, you know, detritus that's collected over the years. One of the, the problems with being limited on funding is that you're always looking for things. It's like, oh, I could save this, you know, scrap of something and use it again or whatever. Yeah. At a certain point, you know, you yeah. You got to clean house a little bit and start fresh with something. So, right. Yeah, we'll never be the biggest operation, but I, I do strive to be a clean operation, which I have mixed success with. I mean, you could talk well, to my boss, he might disagree, but I do what I can. <laughs> yeah, one uh, topic that comes up, Eva and I notice, is uh, small nurseries are, are a thing. 
you know, whether it's a backyard or a quarter acre or an acre and a half. I mean, there's definitely a room for room for for nurseries of all sizes. And yeah. if anything, maybe I'll just go out on a limb and say the big industrial industrialized nurseries have been uh, kind of problematic with product. Yeah, I mean, I'll say I consider myself very fortunate to be in the public sector where we're not driven by profits. And so, you know, the thought of having to to make profit off of some of these products, you know, the margins are pretty slim. And it's, yeah. I mean, it's like farming of any kind, you know, growing anything. It, it's, it can be very difficult. I, you know, especially these days, we've been doing a lot of work looking at our vulnerability to the changing climate. And, you know, I, I often ask myself, like, what kind of a fool has a job that depends on the weather doing what you needed to do all the time? Like, what am I thinking? Well, with that in mind, what do you see Greenland Nursery? How, how do you see it in the future? And how do you see yourself and your nursery influencing others? Because you're obviously influencing us today. If there's anything that you can share with us or even some tips that you can give to our listeners globally, we are a global podcast. Sure. Well, I mean, we are in sort of a transition period, our longtime, so the Natural Lands team, of which I'm a very small part, you know, we're managing almost 6,000 acres of mostly forested landscape, but, um, you know, our focus is on maintaining healthy ecosystems and in- improving habitat value in, in a highly urbanized landscape. And it's it's challenging under current circumstances. And it's looking like it's only going to become more challenging with the changing climate, the increased prevalence of <clears throat> invasive plants and invasive insects and disease that we're dealing with on a regular basis. So we're really trying to look at where we stand, what our practices are, and what the threats coming down the pipeline are, and how we can be well positioned to respond and react and, you know, maybe find some opportunities to act proactively to to bolster these landscapes against some of those pressures. We're participating right now. There's a, a group of Forest Service researchers who have convened a group of similar practitioners up the East Coast from Baltimore to some some cities in Connecticut looking at developing what they're calling a climate adaptive urban silvicultural techniques. So oh looking at ways to, to employ more rural silvicultural techniques in these urban landscapes, and then also looking at some climate adaptive practices. So looking at sourcing Southern genotypes, looking at sourcing Southern species that are on, you know, either outside of their range here or on the, you know, where the Northern end of their range currently and looking at our planting palette, I mean, we tend to plant a very diverse suite of species in our restoration projects. And, you know, we've gotten some of the projections from NIACS, the Forest Service Research Wing, looking at these issues and looking at projected um, movement of tree species across the country. And I think we're somewhat fortunate that a lot of our sort of keystone species aren't projected to lose importance in our region. So a lot of our oaks and hickories are going to remain viable species in our area. I mean, they have their own challenges in getting established apart from climate. Um, but so we're, we're really going to have to start thinking about these, these issues and making sure that we're prepared to deal with them. So 
I would encourage <laughs> anyone else to, to be I, thinking about these issues and share as much as you can. Yeah, I think that that's very important. And I, and I think that that's a, a good way to end our show today and that we have to always be looking forward and looking backwards at the same time, taking from the past our seeds and moving them to the future and also looking at plants in other locations that need to come in because of climate change. And um, we really thank you very much for being on our show today, Max. Sure, yeah, it was my pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Max. It was great. And uh, I promise when I come visit, uh, it'll be during working hours. <laughs> You're welcome anytime. <laughs> yeah, and I'll encourage everyone to get there their time out in the park, wherever they are, but especially if you're in the, the region here, make sure you enjoy the natural areas as part of the park system. We've got lots to see out there. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Take yeah, care. thank you guys. Stay safe, everybody. Bye. Thank you.